What did we really learn about America from the midterms? I'm Matt Robeson, and this is Beyond Politics, the show that dives into and goes beyond politics. We're broadcast on WKXL Radio. We're available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we're available as a video on YouTube and other outstanding video platforms. To dive into this question of what did we really learn, if anything, maybe we didn't learn anything, I'm thrilled to have Rex Hupke who's a one-time chemical engineer, not my usual guest on this show, but he left all of that productive societal work behind to pursue something completely useless, less useful. As a a master's in journalism graduate from the University of Missouri, he began working in his career for the Associated Press, went on to the Chicago Tribune, where he had an outstanding career as a journalist and a columnist through 2022, And then he migrated to USA Today, and he writes perceptively and often hilariously about American politics and society. Rex, welcome to Beyond Politics. Great to be be here. Uh, Great to be anywhere, actually, but thank you. Yeah, we lived through the 2022. So I I concur. It's great that we survived. (laughs) Maybe that's what we learned. We survived. Actually, let me start there. You recently penned a column. Um, do you pen things anymore? Is that a verb? Yeah, yeah, no, but yes. Sure. <laughs> I like the way it sounds. It you verbally like... dictated a column that Alexa filled in the blanks for you, <laughs> where you said that the, the big takeaway from the election is that voters sided with decency. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. I mean, I, I was caught up in the broader prevailing narrative, which came certainly from the right. They did a really good job of, of bragging about how massive, how bigly they were going to win in the midterms. But the, the media narrative and, all, and some of the polling, not all of the polling, certainly pointed towards that trouncing of, of Democrats. And so I really wondered, I mean, we had a lot of people in the Republican Party running for office who were just election deniers. They were hardcore MAGA Trump followers. A lot of nastiness, a lot of people on anti-LGBT bandwagons and leveraging transgender kids' rights for political gain and, and just things that I personally, as not not as a liberal so much, I think, just as sort of as a human being, <laughs> didn't find to be particularly appealing or decent in any regard. And so the, the feeling was, oh God, they're going to win. Like the bully, the bullying, snarling kind of attitude that we saw a lot of, not everywhere, but a lot of, is going to prevail. And, and that seemed bad outside of just the politics and the ideology and stuff. But lo and behold, it didn't. I mean, plenty of people won on that side. You had some election deniers winning. You had some people winning. You know, Florida obviously was went, was went red big time and, and stuff. But in the aggregate, overall, you saw the American people reject a lot of that kind of rhetoric, that kind of thinking, the, the whole election denying concept seemed to repel a lot of people, particularly independents, which was are always sort of the key to, to a, any kind of, a, really any election, not just a midterm. You saw the youth vote go hard for Democrats, indicating again, a, a pushback, not just on policy, but on just that kind of, I almost want to say attitude. And it, the thing that Trump has, has, has uh, brought into our discourse, this really vile kind of over the top bullying rhetoric. I think he saw people generally be like, okay, we're, we're done with this. We, this is too much. So I think that had a lot to do with the swing towards the Democrats. All right. So you're the veteran journalist, not I. So maybe I'm I'm dosing you with some of your own medicine here, but I'm going to ask the tough follow-up that all politicians dread. Uh, why? 
I, I mean, it's, and maybe just to give a little context to that and not to turn it into a five minute question, but a year ago, we saw the typical year after the presidential cycle elections in New Jersey and Virginia, which are which are a little off cycle from the rest of America. And especially in Virginia, we saw Glenn Youngkin's victory as all the takes afterwards were, well, he managed to sound some themes that are kind of nasty at their at their foundational level because it was a lot of picking on people, trans people and, and, and kids and education and CRT. But it was sort of, it was buried under a layer of affable vest wearing tallness that that seemed to go <laughs> down pretty easy with, with voters, certainly in Virginia. And you saw similar results. It wasn't just Yonkin, right? You saw similar results, kind of similar margins in the, in the New Jersey state legislative races. But what you're suggesting in your article and in your analysis is that that kind of thing, either Republicans weren't able to rebottle that, that vibe, or the underlying nastiness began to seep out, mm-hmm. or other issues just kind of came to the fore and overwhelmed it. Maybe, maybe that's not even a complete list. What do you think it is? Why do you think decency prevailed? Very good question and, and very difficult to answer. I mean, in, in politics... There are so many different things that factor in regionally and, and and with the Virginia, a lot happening in Virginia was related to COVID, you know, coming out of COVID and parents annoyed about lockdowns going longer than they thought they should and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there was a lot happening there, but I totally agree with you. I mean, I can absolutely had that at least very strong undercurrent, sometimes more than an undercurrent of, of that same sort of meanness that I'm referring to. So I don't I don't know exactly, but I think that it could just be the continuation of that sort of thing. In other words, the I mean you didn't with all the nastiness of the Trump era, it, a lot of the anti-LGBT, anti-trans stuff kind of came a little bit after that. You know, I mean he was never tied in too much with LGBT issues. He didn't really get very involved there. A lot of that is bubbled up out of Florida with DeSantis and don't say gay and that kind of stuff. And then now we've seen all this, a lot of the school boards going after <clears throat> transgender book, books that mention transgender kids, all these sorts of things. So I think some of it is just time, time where people have been like, okay, this is not a one-off. This is a thing that this party is mm. for whatever reason embracing. But also there's the, you know, the, the, the biggest thing really, I think that changed between Yunkin <clears throat> and Virginia and the other, the things you're talking about. And, and this election was, was Dobbs was the abortion yeah. decision. So that was the other big push. And I think that, that have, well, you look at the polling that drove people out a lot. That was a very influential more. So a lot of people were like, Oh, that's kind of lessened now as we've gotten further away from the ruling, but it clearly hadn't based on the exit polling that we've seen. So, you know, you get kind of a combination of all these things, right? You get some weariness with the election denying, you get frustration with seeing kids and teachers even getting attacked over LGBT related issues. And then of course you have Roe being turned overturned. And so as well as like the possibility of gay marriage, that people coming after gay marriage, you know, based on Thomas's opinion in the in the Dobbs ruling where that's referenced. So there are a lot of other things that happen. <clears throat> I can't explain it all the way. And of course, a lot of it's just speculation. It's just really hard to nail right. a country this big down to, well, here's what exactly happened. But but if you're looking for kind of the 
the, the, the overarching picture, I think it is one of, it's sort of like an accumulation of things that people either just flat out didn't agree with or that they found a repellent, right? Like, and, and you know, Americans, I mean, we're, we, we left and right, we all like, we cast, we paint everybody with a really broad brush. But I do think that at the end of the day, most people are actually good, decent people who don't want to be jerks to other people who don't want to scapegoat kid children or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, so I think that's some of what we saw was a, a little bit of the pendulum kind of swinging from the extremes to, to, to people who were more like, okay, I have feelings politically, but I definitely don't like this. I do not like people who are anti-democracy. I don't like people who say they're only going to accept the results of an election they win. I don't like people saying that there should be no exceptions when it comes to abortion and all these sorts of things. So yeah, it's a swirl. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, well, it's, it is what you're suggesting is that it's very hard to, there's a chicken and egg problem here. It's hard to decide what is prior to what. And so the, the data that we do have, for example, from CNN exit polling suggests that there was a real divide by age, as there usually is, but that the Republican advantage that we've seen for the past 20 years in midterms in differentially turning out seniors who differentially support Republicans, you know, was, was somewhat offset by higher turnout among Gen Z voters who showed up and were profoundly democratic leaning. And so it was Republican advantage of something like 13 points for age 65 plus 11 points for my demographic age 45 to 64. And then as you get a little younger, Democrats begin to do a little bit better, right? Age 30 to 44, it's Democrat plus two, pretty even. But then it's really that Gen Z cohort, the 18 to 29 that comes through with a a D plus 28. And so maybe part of what you're suggesting, again, don't know what's prior to what, but maybe what you're suggesting is that with some time and with some of the nastiness seeping into the consciousness, it seemed like maybe there was a little time for some of this to bake in. And there was a real, there seemed to be a real mental break that occurred in America somewhere around the Dobbs decision where people got activated and they decided the stakes are very real here. And that kind of tuned them in. I mean that quite literally to what followed, which was all of the programming around the January 6th hearings that seemed to seep in in some kind of a meaningful way. You saw that NBC News poll over the summer where suddenly voters said that democracy, threats to democracy was their number one issue. I mean, that could have been a fluke, but just the fact that it could rise to that kind of a level showed that something was penetrating the national consciousness. So all of that long windup leads me into another one of your columns where you suggested Republicans are are now kind of fleeing from Trump, sort of the toxicity of everything having to do with Trump, MAGAism, election denialism, the insurrection. They, they seem to sort of be waking up and saying, oh my gosh, we this was a layup and we booted it like 20 rows into the stands. There's only one culprit here. What do we do here? And, and you kind of ran through, well, what could we go? So where do we go? This is another lesson from the, the midterms. Where are Republicans going to go from here? Where can they go from here on Trump? Yeah, they, they have a real problem. And I, and I say that not as a, again, as a liberal columnist who despises Donald Trump, but just pragmatically speaking, they're, they're deep right now because they have become, they allowed him to so fully take the party over and they have become so reliant on his base. Now, 
and I think one of the, I actually think one of the things that, that, that Bi- President Biden has done really well is to try to sort of suss out the MAGA Republicans versus Republicans in general. And some people, especially on the left, will disagree with that. They'll say, well, they're all in on it. So blah, blah, whatever. But but I, I agree that there is a <clears throat> it may be like 30 percent of, of the Republican base or is this sort of hardcore, in my opinion, cult like followers of Donald Trump who will do anything he says and who will follow him wherever he goes. They're the rally goers. They're the people still giving him money right and left with all of these scammy, grifty emails that get sent out and stuff. So the, but 30% is a lot. That's the problem. And that's always been the problem for Republicans is like, okay, we've got this chunk over here that loves this guy. But at the same time, we pragmatically can see this guy is kind of destroying our brand and, you know, just making a mess of things. And so it, it may have taken these midterms, which really historically should have been a slam dunk for, for Republicans. I mean, inflation is up, economy's marginal, depending on which way you look at it. Biden is unpopular and it's a midterm where the opposing party usually does better. So everything was in their favor. It obviously didn't work out. So yeah, they're now recognized. But it's just, there's something very funny about that to me. I guess it's like a Schadenfreude kind of thing. Cause it's like, they're all of a sudden like, oh, this guy's bad. And everybody else is like, yeah, we've been telling you that for six, seven years now. <laughs> yeah. So listen, Faust, I know you signed on the dotted line and you're loving this fast life that you're leading, but have you noticed the pointy horns and spiked tail on your counterparty in this contract? It's not great. Maybe this, the odor of sulfur should have been a, a dead giveaway here. Yeah. So, okay. All right. I, I mean, I, I could see our viewers and, and sort of picture our listeners thinking to themselves like, all right, Rex and Matt, you've put your finger on the fact that Trump is bad and is a problem for Republicans. We knew that. So let's stipulate that for a second. Pretty bad. What else, if you were an introspective Republican right now, quietly sitting with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and explaining the, the big words to Kevin, what would you what would you say? to them about what Republicans need to fix besides Trump to be more successful in the future? What do they need to do if they're looking in the mirror? Uh, well, I think, I mean, the biggest, aside from Trump, the biggest concern they should have, I think, coming out of the midterms is the youth vote that we saw, mm. because it was just, I mean, disproportionate. And if you look specifically, one of the more interesting figures that I've seen since this happened is a. Uh, of voting on college campuses. I saw one for the University of Michigan and I saw another one. I apologize. I can't remember, but the, at the Michigan University of Michigan, uh, the, the vote student voters broke something like 94% for Gretchen Whitmer and 6% for Tudor Dixon, which is amazing. I mean, that is absolutely staggering. And if I'm a Republican, I'm sweating bullets over that because that's not good at all. So I think that they need to recognize that the culture war nonsense, the attacks on trans kids, all these sorts of things, those are not going to fly with younger voters. I mean, these are these are people who grew up in a much like a far more LGBT friendly environment. They grew up around kids who are transgender. They grew up obviously around gay and lesbian kids who are out and, and everything is fine. And, and they're entering a global world, a world that is a global economy. And, and, you know, it's just that thinking is not going, we're not going backwards there. It's just not going to happen. And I think they need to run like their pants are on fire away from that kind of stuff. Now, that kind of stuff, unfortunately, 
jazzes up the bass a bit. So that's going to be an interesting needle of thread. But I think that's number one. I think the other thing is that they have to come up with some actual policy positions because they really ran into this. The, the level of and, and look, I, I'm I'm always amazed when Democrats don't screw things up. Democrats are consistently terrible on messaging and also just t- tend to like have the ball with no one in front of them and trip right before they get to the end zone. So, so I'm not saying, I think that's called a BB in, uh, yeah, I mean, in NFL terms. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not saying that Democrats are, are brilliant in any way when it comes to this sort of thing, but you know, the Republicans need to, I think they went into this one thinking, Oh, we got this where it's going to be a red tsunami. We don't need any pop. We're not going to tell anybody what we're going to do because why bother? We don't even need to. And that was a big mistake because I think that really hurt them. Also, the, technically, inflation should have been a bigger deal, but I don't think voters who may have been inclined to go either way, I don't think they saw the GOP making any suggestions that would actually have any kind of an impact because they didn't. They they had no. There was no plan. There was never any idea. So, and you know, young voters especially are so smart. They're so tied in. Mm. I don't think the GOP, maybe even the Democrats to some degree, have adapted to the fact that younger people, they've got these little hand computers. They can figure everything out. They, you know what I mean? Like they, they're not dumb. It doesn't, that's, and then that's not even an like educational attainment thing. It's just none of them. They're, they all have access to information. In, in droves. So yeah, I, th- I think that those are the key. I mean, the number one thing is they've got to, they have to do something about Trump and that's going to right. decimate them. And they just, they kind of have to go in, <laughs> go into the desert for a while because it's going to, there's just no way around it. Trump's going to burn them down. So, but, but then on the flip side though, I think it's, it's figuring out how to connect with younger people, stay away from some of these issues that your older base cares about, but the upcoming folks are not only, not only, I mean, they care about in the opposite direction, right? Right, right. Or at least wrap it in a vest and and a nice tall candidate. I mean, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because we saw in this country, a massive flip in voter opinions on marriage equality and general rights for LGBT Americans. And we saw this flip from basically 60, 30 against on marriage equality to 60, 34. And it happened in like five or 10 years. And all the kids that were growing up then they were like 12 and 14. Now they're in this Gen Z voting block and they're responding. I want to flip the script very slightly on my last question, which was about what Republicans need to do to fix what went wrong for them here to be more successful. One of the hardest things to do when you've been relatively successful is to look in the mirror and say, I could have done better here. Let's figure out how. So I want to flip that proposition over to the Democratic Party. Maybe they got lucky. Maybe they were onto something from the get-go in relentlessly talking about abortion, which they messaged at a rate of about 10 to 1 versus messages on the economy in the run-up to the to the midterms. We saw that in the, in the TV ad buys. And so maybe there was some strategy. Maybe they, maybe they were fortunate. Are there things that Democrats need to fix over the next two years to be more successful in the next set of elections? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think so. And I do think <clears throat> that there is an, <laughs> a, a decent amount of things broke right in a, in a lot of ways for Democrats. And and again, Trump Trump's existence in the in the realm of politics is part of it. 
you know, he as much as he is hurting Republicans, he is helping Democrats. So and then, like you said, also, the, the Dobbs decision was a big deal. And that had nothing to do with Democrats. I mean, obviously, they didn't plan that it just happened. So but that certainly energized their base. A- absent those two things, you know, historically, at least, it would have been a bad midterm for, for Democrats, you would think. So they have to find ways, I, I think, I think what you saw, like with John Fetterman, for example, in Pennsylvania, is he was out there a lot. He was really, he wasn't taking the economic issues that people face for granted. And I'm not saying the Democrats, they're not as bad at that as, as I think as some people paint them to be. But I definitely think it's an area where they could be better. There's sort of this like sweet spot between kind of Bernie Sanders populism and what we saw in Fetterman which was a little bit more of a, Fetterman's not a centrist by any means, but he, he was just out there. He was talking directly to people. Um, and, you know, I, I just feel like we're, Bernie's too far left. I think we've seen that. And then there's a, there can be an almost aloofness sometimes when it comes to economic issues from the Democrats. And that's part of where Trump successfully kind of came up with this sort of populism that, that worked for a lot of people in this country. You know, a lot of people in 2016 were willing to look past a lot of his obvious flaws because they thought he was somehow cared about the people, so to speak. <laughs> you know, so not really the case, but whatever. So yeah, I think that for the Democrats, it, it's it's got to be a way of of better making that connection with people, demonstrating that they are in fact doing things that are going to help most people, not just the rich. The Democrats have a tendency to sort of drop back to tax the rich and the rest will work itself out. And and again, it's not it's not really true. It's not, I mean, what they're doing, if you look at the things Biden has accomplished since he's been in office, he, there are a lot of really good things that are really beneficial to people, but the Democrats have just done it for whatever reason, they can't quite seem to communicate that. Part of it, I think, is that you have, you know, the Fox News and the right-wing media ecosystem, which just is a blowtorch of, of amplification that kind of makes it hard. That's don't have that fully, fully in the can for them kind of <laughs> constant media blare that, that help allows them to just get a message across and lock in on it. So I don't know, but going again, going back to Fetterman, if you look at how that campaign was run, you look at Fetterman's social media response and, Oh God, I mean, it was brilliant. Like they, that was a, I think one of the, most well-run campaigns I've ever seen, both in terms of strategy, but, but also in terms of how it connected with people, it connected with young people through its social media, its social media responses to like Dr. Oz stuff were just, just savage. I mean, and they just, just always hitting the right points. And then again, Fetterman out there, he was visiting, he wasn't afraid to go to largely red parts of Pennsylvania and talk to people, even with the issues around his health. You know, he was very upfront of it. I thought the doing the debate was a really uh, bold. You see? Yeah. yeah. Bold. Yeah, I like your euphemism better. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But and and then uh, there was actually I just saw a little bit ago some polling that found that the debate actually helped him, which is what nobody yeah. thought it would. Everybody afterwards was like, oh, God. And, but it didn't because he showed himself as, as being a human being. So I think for the Democrats, it's not, to me, it's not so much, I think their policies generally are, are, are correct, moving in the right direction in terms of mm. helping people and, and, and trying to make things more fair in this country economically. But, it, but they just have, have historically and, and still have kind of a hard time 
getting people to understand that. So I think that's a, a lot of what they need to do is, is better connect on that level. Then they also need to lean in on the things going back to the youth vote that we know, you know, they should no longer be afraid about gun control, right? People mm -hmm. want, I mean, people want sensible gun, the people don't want ban all guns, but they don't, they do want sensible gun control, young people, that's a huge issue for them. And then a climate also, again, that is just going to keep rising in terms of importance. So I think they need to, they try to moderate sometimes to their own detriment. And, and so I don't mean go radical far left, but I mean, lean in on some of these issues that, that they own. I mean, they own climate change, they own gun control, but lean in on those because that's the direction things are going. Just to read that back to you, because there was a lot of, there was a lot, there was a lot of thought. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that. And I'm sort of trying to encapsulate for myself that scenario I laid out before. It's like, you're talking to Kevin McCarthy and, you know, maybe you're doing it with Tinker Toys to explain the, 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 the hard parts. And you're trying to say, here's what to fix on the Republican side. If I'm sitting with Nancy Pelosi and, and Joe Biden, how would I get this across? And it sounds like what you're saying is, look, one thing we learned from the midterms is Talking about these issues that we know resonate, especially with young voters, that works. The traditional political pivot still works. You know, Republicans came in guns ablazing, quite literally. In the case of Lauren Boebert, they came in all fired up about inflation, immigration, crime, maybe cr immigrant criminals are causing inflation, whatever it is. And yeah. they thought that they sort of had their killer app for the election in that trifecta. Mm -hmm. And Democrats, pivoted and they responded with abortion, January 6th, Trump. And for the most part, that seemed to work. It worked well enough. But what you're identifying is a gap and maybe a hopeful sign in the approach from John Fetterman, which is it's not like Democrats don't have ammunition here to have a, an economic message. At the very least, they can do what Fetterman did and empathize. They can humanize. They can talk about their own experience. They can connect. And that can blunt the economic attack. But what they really need to do, you're suggesting, not to put words back in your mouth, but what they really need to do is say, you know what we did in 2021? We created more jobs, 6 million jobs than any year in American history. We took the, the number of Americans receiving unemployment and we reduced it by 16 million. We created more manufacturing jobs in, than any year in the last 30 years. And so we have plenty to talk about here. Our answer on everything having to do with economics and, and, and people's like lived economic experience can't just be tax increases on the, on the wealthy and handouts from the government, which is what a lot of the progressive agenda sounds like to voters. It has to be more visceral. They have to connect more, and it has to be about the kinds of economic arguments that they can actually show that they can accomplish something. All right. That's my summary of what you, what I just learned from you. Go ahead. Tell me I'm, I'm way no, off. No, that's a, it sounded much better coming from you. I wasn't exactly sure what I said by the end of that, but uh, you know, if you want to really distill it down, I think Democrats should not be afraid to be Democrats is basically, mm. I mean, because mm. their message the things that Democrats stand for are in line with with the prevailing attitudes in this country. They really are. And we've kind of known that for a while, truthfully. I mean, the the so many of the things that, that Republicans 
are supporting are opposed by the majority of voters. Abortion, again, anti-LGBT stuff is, is you know, tax cuts for the wealthy, like, like all these things, they don't poll well at all. And yet they've, the right has been able to use this extremely fired up, agitated base to kind of overcome that. Mm-hmm. And also not for nothing, that base, much of that base is fearful because of these bigger societal changes and, 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 you know, the kind of culture war stuff that it's a, it's a, it's a lot of like older white people feeling like they're losing power. And that's obviously what, that's what spurned Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, there's no dancing around that. So, um, but I think the Democrats <laughs> kept trying to pivot in a way like, oh, well, maybe they'll like us if we do this. And they're not going to, they're not going to like you. I mean, people who have, are told 500 times a day that Democrats are de- demons out to feast on the blood of children, they're not going to suddenly be like, oh, well, that's literal. You're not just making <laughs> yeah, stuff no, up. I'm not, right. I'm not. Uh, especially if you're Laura Logan, you you mean it. Yeah. I mean, I think I've thought this for a long time. You're far better for Again, I want technically I want to I want to represent everybody, right? I want everybody to get along. That would be lovely. But the the sort of cold political calculus, I think, is you have a a clump of people, they are not coming to your side, nor are they coming to their senses. I mean, the people who have been like hardcore locked in with Trump and who are following QAnon and who believe the election was stolen. You know, anybody who has a relative who's gone down that rabbit hole knows you're not going to shake them out of that. It's just not going to happen. So appeal to the people who don't feel that way, which happens to be a majority of the people. And it doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean you go radical leftist because that's, I mean, they paint, I mean, Joe Biden is, is a centrist Democrat if ever there was one, you know, they paint him as like the second coming of, of, you know, Karl Marx or something. I mean, so does that get a come on man out of you? Yeah, right. Come on. Come on, (laughs) man. Glasses, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) So, you know, I, I, I want to, I don't want to miss the opportunity to kind of applaud you for one of your pre-election insights that I think turned into one of the post-election lessons learned. And you wrote this a full two weeks before the midterm elections. So proud of you. I'm really, I'm impressed. You wrote, polling is often more misleading than edifying. We're addicted. No, that's, that's my wording. Sorry. We're addicted to midterm election polls and it's not doing us any good. Bam. You're clearly right. You know, now look, the smart folks at the New York Times, like Nate Cohn and the smart folks at 538, like Nate Silver, do insist that in toto, polling did not do terribly. And in many cases, it was reasonably accurate in a kind of polling average aggregate kind of way. But your point was much deeper than that. What what were you arguing about why polling? is actually hurting us. Well, because we get we get so sort of addicted to that. And it's like this desire to know the future, right? I mean, we, that's really what it is. We want a crystal ball. We don't want to wait until election day or however many days after election day when when you know the results are tabulated to find out what's going to happen. We want to know now what it's like we want our it's like seeing the Christmas presents under the tree when you're a kid. Yeah, we're all failing the marshmallow test as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, we really are. And the problem is that there are so many polls and they vary all over the landscape. If you look at the polling pre now again, but when you talk about the Nate Silver and Nate, the 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 smart Nates out there, <clears throat> they look at things in an aggregate, right? They have their average, their polling averages, et cetera. 
and also they're, they're firm believers in the math and they're not, I don't think they're, I mean, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong, but the problem is that most people are not seeing the, they're not carefully studying the polling averages and thinking about the plus or minuses and the variances and, and all these different things. They're seeing polls come in from left-leaning, from right-leaning, from just dumb polling places that aren't good at what they do, as well as some legitimate polls kind of in the mix. So they're seeing this ping pong, which is what I, I saw. That's what prompted me to write the column was that I kept seeing like so-and-so, like Fetterman up, you know, seven points, Oz up two points. Fetter- I mean, it just is like, what, what? It's like all this back and forth. And what do you do with that? Like, what is, there's, what is the use of any of that, right? It's useful to the campaigns, of course. You know, it helps them more strategically uh, disperse their resources and whatnot. I get that. Internal polling is, I'm sure, very important for a campaign. But for a regular person, it's not doing anything, man. It's just, it's like, pay attention to the candidates. Yeah. Vote for who you think is the best and encourage other people to do likewise. But if you're just watching the polling, I mean, what's, you know, it's right. just not getting us anywhere. And I just think we've become, again, it's, it's almost like a, there's a reality TV component to it almost. Right. I mean, we just, right. we got to know what's happening. We got to be the first to know things. So people would see a poll and they they tweet it out like, Oh wow, look at this, you know? And then somebody else would come in and say, well, actually that poll is not very reliable, whatever. And it's just, it's all just chatter and noise. And, and so that was kind of my <laughs> frustration. Well, I, I think it's, it- I have two points and they're jostling for position in my brain. I'm not sure which one's going to win. One is what you're speaking to is largely horse race polling and our addiction to kind of the sporting match nature of elections, which are are super serious. They, they really matter. And the people who are in this, I spent a long time as a congressional staffer and I didn't do it for the pay or the glamour. I promise you I did it because I really cared about, the underlying issues. It, I, it felt like it really mattered and I wanted to make a difference. And there's something that obscures that underlying importance in, in horse race polling. But I also, as a campaign manager, I certainly made copious use of internal campaign polls to try to chart course and decide what to do and, and what ads to run, what to talk about. But I've come to worry in, in my time off of Capitol Hill and outside of campaigns that we're kidding ourselves, that that political professionals are having one conversation. We're, we're, we're speaking Swahili and the people we're, we're talking to are speaking Cantonese and there's something major lost in translation. And we'll talk about issues in a certain kind of top 1% of, of informed political nut jobs kind of way. And what the voters are hearing and what they're telling back to us is is just, it's very, very different. I think we may be misleading ourselves as much as we're edifying ourselves mm-hmm. yeah. in the process. And I wrote a whole article about this. You can look it up. It's on Alternet and Raw Story about why, why public opinion polling is extraordinarily misleading. And, and it, it in a way that I think is hurting America. So that's my pitch. I'll, let me throw one more at you because I think it connects to something you said earlier. This is not one of your columns. It's actually one of mine. I wrote a column in Newsweek about two weeks ago where I said, get rid of political debates. They're hurting America in kind of a John Stewart telling Tucker Carlson to, to take a hike on crossfire kind of way, like stop, you are hurting America. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the Fetterman debate and everyone 
reacting, oh my gosh, the, the man, he's having a hard time speaking words, therefore he should not. It, it was a terrible basis on which to judge a candidate. And by the way, not, not to sound super partisan about this, the fact that Mehmet Oz got all like wound, like caught on his own words and said, local officials like your alderman should be in the room with you and your doctor when you make abortion decisions. Okay, <laughs> terrible gaffe, horrible thing to say. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that that's not really his position. He doesn't really, and that's not maybe the best basis on which to judge politicians is when they get tangled over their words in a TV debate. So my, sure. let me lob one at you. Um, what do you make of my contention that a lesson learned from the 2022 midterms is that debates are either useless or downright bad? Yeah, I, I agree completely with that. I think they're, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's reality TV basically at this point. I mean, I, I, debates, I don't think are going to swing people. One, a thing that I like better than debates actually is when they do like a town hall with one mm. candidate at a time, not both candidates, those I don't mind as much. I mean, I'm still like, but I, mean, I think at least that's, <clears throat> if you want to watch a candidate sort of put on the spot and have them put on the spot by real people, as opposed to by kind of and I don't think journalists do who run the debates do a bad job. I'm not saying that, but they're asking very like pointed kind of say, I'd rather, and, and, and in some cases kind of predictable questions too. I'd rather see a candidate standing there having to respond in real time to actual people and their questions, which are maybe not exactly what they were expecting, or they don't follow the kind of narrative you would expect and blah, blah, blah. You know, you could have like a liberal voter asking a question that almost sounds more like something you'd expect from a, a more conservative person or whatever. I mean, just things that might kind of throw them. I, I don't mind that because you sort of see how a politician reacts in real time to, to things like that. But yeah, the debates are, I mean, especially the presidential debates, good Lord. I mean, they practice, you know, it's a like, it's like a law school moot court or something. I mean, they, they practice for months. And Why not just, just pre-record your yeah. your zingers, right. meme them yeah. in advance, yeah, exactly. and save us all the bother? <laughs> hey, you said one other thing, but you said a lot of things that were super interesting. You said one other thing I just wanted to pick up on because it connects to another one of your columns, and maybe we can close out on this one. You wrote a column about the right-wing media, Fox News. We're looking at you here, people. Going full sicko after the Paul Pelosi attack. You alluded earlier to the amplification that mm. Republicans benefit from, from media on the right really being an echo chamber and very relentlessly on message, whereas mainstream media, like you participate in, they, they try, they at least try to pitch down the middle. You are a member of the fourth estate. You're, you're a columnist. You're, you were a, a reporter. What do you what did we learn about the state of America from the 2022 midterms and about the role of the media? You know, are there are, are there takeaways there? Is is Fox News maybe less potent and scary than we thought? Are are, are journalists doing their jobs? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, Fox News is definitely, you know, bananas and 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 dangerous. I I, I fully believe that the, the damage that Fox News has done to the brains of many, many Americans is savage. And and uh, frankly, the very few people out there who don't, again, who don't know someone in their family who has been severely changed and and, and kind of like brainwashed to some degree by Fox News. So I, I am a firm believer that they are just horrendous. And I, I really have major issues with, with them, particularly with the Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity's and the pundits. I mean, that's the primary problem on that network. 
But the Paul Pelosi thing was staggering. And I, and I mm. because I have not seen, well, I've seen, obviously, the election denier line has, and, and there's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there. I have not seen something bubble into a conspiracy theory and congeal and get just shot out there with such force as that. I mean, in a matter of a day or two, that had turned from an obviously terrible thing that happened, right? I mean, I'm, <laughs> call me, call me soft, but when an 82 year old man gets attacked by someone with a hammer, I tend to empathize with that person regardless of anything else. Okay. I just don't think that's something that should happen, but that was turned into this nasty, you know, like anti-gay kind of tryst and blah, blah, just not, and they're blaming the police and acting like everybody's in on it. And it just, I mean, it was like that. I mean, it just happened so fast. And that gave me pre that pre-election that terrified me about what was going to happen post-election because I'm like, if they can do that with that situation, if they've gotten so good at twisting people's brains up, then this post-election is going to be just untold chaos. The fact that it wasn't is what has interested me a lot. You know, the clearly the defeats were sound enough in most cases in this election that there just wasn't even an opportunity for that sort of like right-wing nutter stuff to, to, to even set in. Well, we've yet to see it. I mean, if Carrie Lake winds up losing, which who knows, you know, there, there's, there's still room for some election denialism to creep in, in the wake of, of the longer counts and stuff. But bottom line though, is, is, is the midterms went pretty smoothly and there, there, a lot didn't come from that. So mm-hmm. does that mean that, People at Fox News saw that the the sort of wild babble wasn't effective and maybe actually turned people off. And so they've kind of pumped the brakes a little bit. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the weeks and months to come. But but yeah, I, 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 so that's the that's kind of the right media, the mm. Fox News types. As far as the rest of, of journalism goes, and, and I'm really I'm always very hesitant to use the media. That's a that's a huge right. Rush. Like I, I try to tell people if they're criticizing the media, tell me who, like what is, what specifically is it that you're griping about? Because absolutely we make mistakes. We make mistakes. Unless they mean your column specifically, in which case they're, <laughs> they're wrong. Right. I've, I've, I've yet to be wrong to the best of my knowledge. So, uh, but, but the, so if people want to, and look, I've made mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes in journalism. We're, we're plumbers make mistakes. Electricians make, everybody makes mistakes. It happens. So if you're criticizing the media, try to be specific about it. That said, I actually, I kind of go against my, my normal train of uh, way of doing things in saying that more broadly, I do think our political mainstream media did a very poor job going into this election because they were, they bought into the red wave narrative, not quite as much as the <laughs> Republicans did, but kind of, if you looked at some of the headlines and, and stuff in the lead up, like let's prepare for a drubbing and just all this sort of stuff. And they were wrong. And so what I'd like to see now is kind of what we saw after the media was, uh, the broad media was wrong about Trump in 2016. I'd like to see a little bit of reflection, a little bit of what did we miss here? Why did we do this? Uh, I haven't seen that yet. So I, I feel like I feel like the, the mainstream press, sort of the non-Fox News, non-right-wing echo chamber type press is very, is always in a state of fear that it's going to be labeled as liberal. And so it has a tendency to yes. overcorrect. It has a tendency to, to give more credence to the right in an effort to not seem biased, which I think is very dumb. 
I, I don't like that idea at all because what we should be is honest and not and not care who we make mad at us, right? So I mean that's it was the it was the resistance in in the mainstream media outlets to say that Donald Trump was lying to use the word lie. I experienced that for a long time. I was at the Chicago Tribune with my columns there. It was a while before they would let me say he is lying. Eventually they did. And that kind of finally caught on, but it caught on way later than it should have. So, yeah, I think that's something that we need to be honest with people. We're dealing with really serious issues here. I mean, we're talking about election deniers. You're talking about people kind of almost leaning in the, in the fascism direction at times. We owe it to readers, to viewers, to everybody to say it straight and not worry. You know, I mean, if I say something that makes the left mad, well, too bad. If I say something that makes the right mad, well, they're used to that. But <laughs> but that, that's I think that's the way news organizations need to look at things is we are going to say things that are as accurate as we can possibly make them and and as well backed up as, as they could possibly be. And we're going to say it honestly. And we're not going to worry about whether somebody calls us left leaning, right leaning or whatever. Well, first of all, actually, let me say three things to close out the show. One is that the point you just made was something that we explored in great depth with Mark Jacob, a former editor at the Chicago Tribune, and, and, yes. and your editor at he the is my editor, and, yeah, yeah, Mark, yeah, Tom. and at the yeah. Chicago Sun Times, and you know, this is his core point: is that the media, because of the fear of being labeled as too liberal, they have kind of gone into a defensive crouch and they've overcorrected and they're like the Pentagon fighting the last war. And they have in, in essence enabled the, the right-wing media in their mission to be the echo chamber amplifying the Republican party. It's, it's sort of a Kaiser so say level of trickeration that they've pulled off this, this perception, this charge that the media has a liberal bias when if you just look at the numbers, and I've gone through this in previous shows, so people need to subscribe to Beyond Politics so that you can hear all that, but just go through the numbers. Go through the numbers in talk radio, in cable news, in social media, Go in every medium, go through the numbers. And it is obvious that right-wing media absolutely dominates certainly any liberal, ostensibly liberal media and even mainstream media. And so this idea of a liberal bias or the idea that, well, we've, as a country, we've got our head in the icebox and our feet in the oven. So on average, we feel fine as a media. No, no, we are burning up with conservative media. And the final thing I'll say though, because that was kind of a downbeat note, is between us, me as a podcast host, you as a veteran and experienced journalist and one of the most successful opinion columnists in America. Rex, we buried the lead, man. You and I buried the lead. If there was one lesson that that now that you say it stands out to me about the 2022 midterms, it's maybe America still works. Maybe elections work. Our democracy worked. We didn't have a total meltdown. People pushed back against, for the most part, the big lie and elections worked and there, there weren't massive controversies for the most part. That's good news. I, anything we missed. I mean, that's a, that's as yeah, happy no, a note as I could think of. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And except for the part where I'm the something journalist in America, that part's nonsense, but you are <laughs> now listen, but this is what I call the ghostbusters principle. If someone asks you, are you a God? You say yes. And yeah. if I tell you that you're the most successful opinion columnist in America, you say, yes, I am. I, 
got to trump this. I will be adding that to my LinkedIn page immediately. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the thing, there were a lot of things we were watching for. We were watching for violence at the polls, voter intimidation at the polls. And then, of course, what I thought, if, if, if I, I thought there would be chaos after this, if there were a lot of closer elections and the election deniers all went sideways and stuff. And you're right, that didn't happen. It didn't materialize. And that shows you not only what you said, which is a great point, that democracy works and it did its thing. Thank, thank you, democracy. Thank you, voters. But also that the nuttery factories out there <laughs> that are churning out that, well, we've got thousands of poll watchers and are full of garbage. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say or not say here. They are absolutely full of it and they are small. This is where, so we are talking the, the, the portion of people in this country who are in that, like I said before, that sort of conspiratorial QAnon, Trump hugging, they are loud as the Dickens, but they are not a they are not a force to be reckoned with. And we saw that. I mean, Steve Bannon never shut up about how many thousands of poll watchers and yada. Where is it, right? I mean, he's on his way to jail and, or prison and nothing happened and democracy lives to lives to fight another day. So that's a good thing. Amen. America, we're a mess. But at the end of the day, it more or less works. All right, Rex Hupke, the, the, one of America's most successful, well-known and acerbically witty opinion columnist for USA Today. Thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. Absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. And I will be hiring you to run my PR <laughs> wing. <laughs> uh, thanks so much. It was really nice talking to you. <laughs>